Acts chapter 20, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 1 to 12, our passage for this morning. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 12. Uh, the first Sunday of the month is uh, one of my favorite Sundays at Del Rio Bible Church. I know that you would think it's probably the Sunday, the third Sunday when we eat, but, <laughs> but it's the first Sunday <clears throat> because I really love taking the Lord's Supper. I really love partaking of the bread and the cup that remind us of what Jesus did for us, and we get to do that at DRBC every first Sunday, and we'll be doing that this morning, so uh, I'm excited about that. And I'm excited, too, that we can study the Word of God. We'll have a shortened time in the Word of God this morning because of the Lord's Supper. We want to have plenty of time. We don't want to rush through that. And so we will uh, not have quite as much time in the Word of God this morning. But we are in Acts chapter 20. If you would turn to Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12, uh, I'd like to read that, and then we'll pray, and we'll study the Word of God. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through the area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months because the Jews made a plot against him just as he was about to sail for Syria. He decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the feast of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful again that we can be together, that we can worship you through song, that we can worship you through the study of your word, that we can worship you as we partake of the bread and the cup in the Lord's Supper. Thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for the salvation that is ours through simply putting our trust in Jesus. Guide us in our study, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to my knowledge, no one has ever fallen out of a third-story window during one of my sermons. However, I have to admit that I have put some people to sleep over the years. So uh, I kind of really uh, enjoy this passage of the Word of God. I really like the story of Tychicus. He's one of my favorite uh, characters in the Word of God. When I was in seminary, we had a professor who was named Howard Hendricks. 
and he was one of the greatest teachers of the Word of God of my lifetime. And uh, you, you couldn't help but like Howard Hendricks. And I'll never forget, in one of the first uh, classes that I had with him, it was a big room, you know, and a bunch of, a bunch of people and a bunch of desks. And, and uh, he said, now the one thing that drives me crazy above everything else is when I see people going, He said, if you feel sleepy, just put your head down in the desk and take a nice nap. But he said, don't sit there fighting it. Don't go like this. That drives me crazy. <laughs> and I never forgot that. I thought that was a great illustration. It, it is, there's a story told around seminary, whether it's true or not, about one, one poor guy that fell soundly asleep during one of his classes. And... Uh, the guy next to him, the student next to him, was a bit of a jerk. And, uh, and so in the middle of the lecture, this guy's sound asleep, and he goes like this, and he says, the, pa the professor asks you to pray, and the guy jumps up and starts praying. So uh, I don't know if that's a true story, but it's passed around the seminary from class to class to class. So if I put you to sleep this morning, don't worry about it. It's okay. You have good biblical, uh, we both have good biblical grounds to stand on. Uh, to be serious about chapter 20, verses 1 to 12, there's a couple of things that I want you to see and I don't want you to miss. And the first is this, that discouragement and infighting in the church hampers the Word of God. Discouragement and infighting in a church hampers, hinders the Word of God. We're going to see that in the earlier part of chapter 20. And then the second thing that we're going to see as we study through this is that uh, believers are always countercultural. You and I are always out of step with the culture. If we are in step with God, we're out of step with the culture. If we're in step with the culture, something's wrong. Something's wrong. So uh, we are always out of step with the culture. We are always countercultural. Uh, Therefore... Therefore, we need strengthening. We need to be encouraged. We need to be immersed in the Word. And we're going to see that all throughout chapter 20. These people of God are immersed in the Word of God. Paul spends hour upon hour, day after day, month after month, year after year, strengthening, exhorting, encouraging the people of God in the Word of God. Why is that? It's because we are walking counter to the world. And that becomes difficult for us so many times. And we need to be encouraged. We need to be strengthened. We need to be immersed in the Word. We need to be prepared for persecution. We need to, be, we need to have fellowship with one another. And we see all of those elements here in the early church. We see all of those elements here in the early church. Now, the first six verses, chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, is almost like a, a travel log. Uh, uh, I'll go over quickly what, uh, what we see here. In verse 1, uh, Paul, we read in, in verse 1, when the uproar had ended. Do you remember what that uproar was? We studied it last week with Chris. The uproar was the, silver, the silversmiths, Demetrius, 
who caused a great uproar over the people who quit buying the idols of the goddess Artemis, and it hurt their income. And so the, the, uh, the artisans caused a riot in Ephesus. Well, that's what it's talking about here. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Well, he goes from uh, Ephesus to Troas, where he hoped to find Titus, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. And then he went from Troas to, to Macedonia, from Macedonia to Corinth, from Corinth to Macedonia back again, retraced his steps, and then he went from Macedonia to Troas. Now, uh, all that to tell you that there's more than a year's ministry, a lot more than a year's ministry in these six verses. There's a lot more than a year's ministry in these six verses. Now, this isn't meant to be a travelogue. Luke didn't mean to give us a travelogue. What we are encountering here in chapter 20 is this. Enduring this more than year's ministry in these verses, there are many details about what Paul did that, are, that come in from other sections of Scripture. And so we have to look at other passages of Scripture to see just exactly what was it that Paul did during this time. Uh, many details are supplied from other places in the Word of God. Uh, if you'd like to, you can write this down or turn to this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, uh, help us to understand some of what was happening with Paul in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 12 and 13. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened the door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Uh, this, this is happening during these uh, travels of these six verses. What's happening is that Paul is waiting for word about how the Corinthians had reacted to a letter he sent to them. And he was concerned about their reaction. And he was waiting for uh, Titus there to help him understand uh, how had the people responded to him. He's consumed by his concern for the Christians at Corinth. And because he's consumed... And you remember that Corinth is a church that had all kinds of divisions. Corinth is a church that had all kinds of disorder. Corinth was a church that had all kinds of sin. And he's concerned about what's going on there and waiting for Titus and waiting for a report from Corinth to find out how had they reacted to his exhortation to them. And it so bothered him that we read that he could not, he had an open door for ministry, but he had no peace of mind. That's so important for us to understand that when the church is not at peace, when churches are not at peace, ministry is hindered. Ministry is hindered. When there is that under... Uh, going on in the church, that, 
that, uh, that kind of divisions and uh, distractions, what happens is ministry is hampered. A church needs to be at peace. A church needs to uh, be in fellowship with one another, encouraging one another, uh, lifting each other up. When that doesn't happen, it stops the ministry. It stops the ministry. And so that's what happened to Paul here. He is so concerned for the Christians at Corinth that he's unable to launch out on any new missionary activities. We also see in 2 Corinthians, if you're still there, look at chapter 7, verses 5 to 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 to 16. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every side, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. In other words, finally Titus came and said, the Corinthians have accepted your rebuke. The Corinthians have accepted your exhortation. And so Paul is once again free to minister well, he wrote from Macedonia, he apparently wrote the second book to the, uh, the Corinthians. And uh, he went to uh, Greece later and stayed there three months where he wrote the book of Romans. And the important thing that I want us to see in all of Paul's travels, he did two things. He did two things that were so important during these travels. The first was that he encouraged them. Look again at the book of Acts, chapter 20. The book of Acts, chapter 20. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples after encouraging them. Underline that word encouraging, that's important there. Under, after encouraging them, they said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled throughout that area speaking many words of what? Encouragement. Underline that again. Paul is encouraging them. The two reasons for this trip, of the two reasons for this trip, the first was to encourage the believers. And that means to strengthen them. To strengthen them. To help them, as one writer said, to stand true. To help them to be effective in witness. That was Paul's burden was for the church. As he looked at the churches uh, that he had established, he thought about the people in those churches and how some of them were turning away from the first faith. Some of them were not walking as they ought to, were not living as they ought to. And so Paul wanted to encourage them. And we see over and over and over again, one of Paul's deep desires is to encourage believers. And that word encourage can be exhort. Do you notice how he did it? He did it by teaching them the Word of God. The Word of God is central to everything a church does. 
The Word of God is central to everything we do here at Del Rio Bible Church. The Word of God is central. If, if you and I are to be encouraged, if you and I are to be challenged, if you and I are to be exhorted to go on in our Christian faith, to, to go on and continue to grow in the Word of God, to continue to grow to maturity, if we are going to do that, we need to hear the Word of God. We need to be taught the Word of God. And that's what we see over and over again. Paul teaching the Word of God, encouraging by the Word of God, exhorting by the Word of God. Larry Richards has done a really good job of putting together what the book of Acts says about Paul's ministry among the churches. And I'd like to just share that with you. He says, from the start of his apostolic ministry, Paul had followed the pattern of revisiting churches he'd helped establish. On these return visits, he did six things. So there are six things that Paul did when he returned to visit the churches established on previous trips. The first thing is, as Richards puts it, he talked a lot. He talked a lot. He traveled throughout the area, it says in verse 2, speaking many words. Uh, Richards tells us that many words in Greek indicates more than quantity. It means breath. It means fervor. He fine-tuned their theology, and I love this phrase, built a fire under their faith. He fine-tuned their theology and built a fire under their faith. There's a writer I enjoy reading when I study these passages of the Word of God by the name of Willimon, and he talked about the word encouraging or the word exhortation, and he said this, exhortation by Christian teachers and preachers enables disciples to discern between true and false gospels, authentic tradition, and spurious imitation it doesn't really matter what a person believes as long as he or she is sincere is not a slogan devised by Paul. It's not a slogan devised by Paul. It matters what we believe. And Willimon goes on to say, weak, inarticulate, unexamined belief leads to weak disciples. The Christian faith is considerably more than a mere intellectual act exercise, but it is not less than an intellectual challenge. There are facts to be mastered, truths to be discerned, stories to be uh, told right, thus a major part of any faithful congregation's life will be spent in exhortation. The Word of God is essential if you and I are going to grow. The Word of God is essential if we're going to be mature in the faith. So the first thing that Paul did when he visited, revisited churches, was he talked a lot. Richards mentions the second thing that he did was to encourage them. He goes on to say, encouragement in Greek is persuasion, cheer, and comfort. Paul lifted their spirits in the face of the persecutions and pressures and gave them solid reasons to keep on believing. The third thing he did was strengthen them. Strengthening means <coughs> that Paul validated and invigorated their faith, taught them to rest confidently in the Lord. The fourth thing he did was to appoint elders. He identified spiritually mature people and gave them authority to shepherd the flock. 
The fifth thing he did was he prayed for the churches. He prayed for the churches. The sixth thing that he did was he committed them to the Lord. Committed means that Paul handed control and care of each church to the Lord. He would travel on, but Jesus would be their leader and Savior. Well, that's what Paul would do as he, as he revisited these churches that he established on earlier missionary journeys. He would exhort them, encourage them, pray for them, appoint leadership in their churches, challenge them to move on in the Christian faith, challenge them to grow in the faith. Well, that was the first reason for his trip, particularly this trip, The second reason was, uh, and I'm going to ask you to write this down because I don't have time to turn to these passages, but the uh, second reason was the collection for the impoverished saints at Jerusalem. We read about that. That was happening at this time period that chapter 20 verses 1 to 6 covers. We read about that in Romans 15 verses 25 to 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. The second thing, the second reason for this trip is Paul wanted to complete the commitment that so many churches had made to help the saints of Jerusalem. The saints of Jerusalem were impoverished. They were having difficulty and they needed help. And Paul organized through the Gentile churches He organized help for the saints at Jerusalem. And so another part of what he did, he not only encouraged and strengthened and exhorted the believers, but he also completed the collection for the needy saints at Jerusalem. Paul had spoken to the church at Galatia, the church at Asia, at Achaia, at Macedonia, the churches in all of those areas were all instructed about this offering for the saints in Jerusalem. Why was this important? What was the importance of taking this collection? Well, it would be a symbol of unity. It would be a symbol of unity, a symbol of the oneness of the church. All of the churches that participated in this collection for Jerusalem, they were what? Gentile churches. They were Gentile churches and they were taking up a collection to supply the needs of the Jerusalem church, which was primarily a Jewish church, primarily made up of converted Jews. And therefore, one reason for the importance of this collection was that it was a symbol of the unity, a symbol of oneness. A second reason was it was a symbol of the spread of the gospel, the the vitality of the Gentile churches. Remember, this church that began in Jerusalem with a couple of thousand believers had now grown through Paul's missionary endeavors, had now grown to cover Eastern Europe, to cover Asia Minor, And Paul was knocking on the door to Western Europe because his desire was to go to Rome. His desire was to go to Rome. This Christianity spread and it showed the vitality of these Gentile churches 
that they were not only desirous of, but they were willing to help the believers in Jerusalem. Uh, the importance of the collection was that it was a symbol of the partnership, the sharing, the fellowship of believers. Giving is an important part of the Christian life. Paul deals with that in several places, and that's not our topic this morning, but I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version about what the Bible says about giving. Ephesians 4 says that we give as believers because there are those who are in need. We give as believers so that the work of the ministry, the work of the gospel can go forth. We give as believers so that the gospel may be spread as missionaries take the gospel to parts of the world it has not yet been. And finally, we give for, uh, uh, in response to God's giving to us so much. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 4 has the four bullet points of giving, and I'll just give those to you because we don't have time to get into them. But giving, according to 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 4, should be regular. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, on the first day of the week, that is, at the normal meeting time of the church, there should be a collection. There should be an opportunity to give. So giving should be regular. Number two, Paul said it should be proportionate to income. Proportionate to income. Thirdly, he says it should be systematic. It should be something that you and I have thought through. It should be something that we have thought through about what is it that God desires that I give. Now, some people uh, choose, choose 10%, a tithe. Um, in the Old Testament, a tithe, with, there were actually three tithes, which came to about 23 and a third percent per year for every, for every Jew. Uh, the New Testament doesn't give a percentage. The New Testament doesn't give a percentage. Paul says we, our giving should be proportionate. Now, many people uh, wonder, well, why... Where did the idea of tithe come from? Well, for the Hebrew, in their thought, the tithe to give 10% was to give all. 10% was rev relative uh, of giving everything. And that was the idea. So Paul says giving should be regular. Giving should be proportionate to income. Giving should be systematic. We should think through it. And giving is for every believer. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, each one of you. Each one of you. Uh, so, two reasons for this trip. To encourage the believers and to finish the collection for the impoverished saints at Jerusalem. Well, in verse 3 we read, he stayed three... Uh, in, in Greece, he stayed there three months because the Jews made a plot against him just as he was about to sail for Syria. Syria is where the Antioch church, sending church was that, that sent Paul out on his missionary journeys. He was about to go back to Syria and he was going to take a ship. Uh, it was a, 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 what they called in those days a pilgrimage ship. Many Jews who wanted to go back to Jerusalem in time for the Passover would take a pilgrimage ship. 
So Paul wanted to do that, and just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. We read that it was because the Jews had made a plot against him. In other words, they wanted to get Paul on board the ship then they would assassinate him and throw his body into the sea and he'd be never heard from again. Paul got wind of that and he changed his plans. I, I want you to notice something here. Paul kept going forward with courage. He kept going forward with stamina. He kept going forward with single-mindedness. He kept going forward without complaining. But what I want you to also notice is that he wasn't going to take unnecessary risks. There are some believers that put themselves in harm's way because they say, well, God will take care of me. Well, don't test God like that. Don't test God like that. Paul wasn't taking an unnecessary risk. Otherwise, he would have said, oh, I know there's a plot against me, but God will protect me, and he would have got on that ship. But what did he do? He decided, I'm going to go a different way. There's nothing wrong with being prudent in our lives. Well, verse 4, he was accompanied, and then it talks about the people who accompanied me and accompanied him, excuse me. Uh, what is interesting about this, and I, I won't go through all these names, uh, it was enough just to read all of them. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the interesting thing is that three of these Men who joined Paul were, and by the way, the reason that they all joined Paul was so that they could accompany him, him taking this offering back to Jerusalem. It would be dangerous in those days to carry that amount of money, and so these people would be there for protection, but also there to represent all of the churches that had given. All of the churches that had given. There were three from Macedonia, one from Berea, two from Thessalonica. There were four from Asia Minor, that is from Galatia, uh, the province of Asia. And the point of that is this, that all of these people were representative of how the Gentiles had been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and how Jew and Gentile had been placed together in one body called the church. And so we read a list of names, but we don't understand there's so much here. There's so much here to show how the gospel, how the church had grown. And though it becomes ultimately, uh, primarily and majorly, a Gentile church, that the Gentiles were recognizing that they were one with the Jews in the church and they were meeting the needs of these impoverished Jews in Jerusalem. Well, uh, verse 5, These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread and five days later joined the others at Troas where we stayed seven days. They stayed to observe the Passover. They stayed to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, uh, and so they did. Now, 
Verse 6 tells us that they sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread and five days later joined the others at Troas where we stayed seven days. One writer said the church of Acts is not always pushing out on the move, opening its doors, appealing to unbelievers. The church also gathers for worship and fellowship without the sustenance received at its Sunday gatherings, the church might lose itself in mere busyness, might forget who it is and whose it is, might lose heart amidst the myriad of demands and assaults upon it by the surrounding world. In other words, as we look at the book of Acts, the church isn't busy all the time. They took time to join together they took time <clears throat> to worship. They took time to study the Word of God. They, they took time to fellowship with one another. They took time to share together in the Lord's Supper. And they weren't always busy. A busy church is not necessarily a healthy church. A busy church is not necessarily a healthy church. Well, on the first day of the week, verse 7 this is the clearest reference, by the way, in the New Testament that the church met on Sunday. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. That phrase, break bread, there is a reference to the Lord's Supper. So apparently, uh, at their church meetings, at their church services, they would break bread, meaning they would take partake of the Lord's Supper. So I find it fascinating that you and I join in with all of those all through the centuries in the church who have sat together in a church service and partaken of the bread and partaken of the cup. And we, the church has done that for thousands of years now. And you and I are going to join in that this morning. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that amazing? We're going to join in that. That's what they did. But they didn't just take the Lord's Supper. Verse 11 tells us, Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. That little phrase, and ate, whenever you see that compound, breaking bread and eating together, it means a meal. So they not only took the Lord's Supper, but they also shared together in a common meal. They shared together in a fellowship meal. So that's what we see happening in Troas. <clears throat> they met together on the first day of the week, Sunday. They ate together. They partook of the Lord's Supper. They met at night. We are seeing here in verses 7 to 12. The reason for that is many of the uh, people in the church in that day came from the lower classes who would be working during the day so they wouldn't be able to come during the, uh, during the day and they would come at night and meet together at night. They met in homes because there were no church buildings at that time. And as one writer said, the length of the meeting was not regulated by the clock. Now that's interesting to me. Do you notice that Paul preached until midnight? That's when Tychicus fell out of the third story window to the ground below and died from the fall. Paul comes downstairs 
raises him from the dead like Peter did with Dorcas, like Elijah did, like Elisha did. Paul raises him from the dead. They go back upstairs. They eat some food together. And then they keep going until 6 a.m. Can you imagine a church service like that? Well, there are a couple of things here. One writer said the common meal was marked marked as nothing else could, the family spirit of the church. That's why we do fellowship lunches. We've been doing fellowship lunches ever since we began back in 1997, 1998. We've been doing fellowship lunches. We do them because we want to have an opportunity for the church to be together. And we did not want to make it difficult for you to come to that. So most of our fellowship meals, there are a few that are potlucks, but almost all of them uh, are meals where the church supplies the meal. Why do we do that? Because we want as many people to stay as possible, and we want to make it easy for them to come. Why? Because we know how important that fellowship is. It's not the food. It's not the food, it's the fellowship, and we know how important it is. And so that's why we've been doing the fellowship meals. Well, one writer said, what counts when Christians gather is to meet God, remember Jesus, yield to the Spirit, build relationships, and leave better equipped to live the life and share the story. Well, J. Vernon McGee, he always has a fun way to say things. He said this, I confess that Paul's experience has also been a comfort to me. When I look out at the congregation and see some brother or sister out there sound asleep, I say to myself, it's all right, just let them sleep. Paul put them to sleep too. So I, I love his attitude. What's important in this passage is this. Discouragement and infighting in a church can hamper the Word of God. And it did in Paul's ministry. But secondly, believers, you and I, are always countercultural. And we need strengthening, and we need encouragement, and we need to be immersed in the Word of God, and we need to be prepared for persecution, and we need fellowship with one another. And so that's what we strive to do as they did. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the example of Paul in the early church. Thank you for the encouragement that your word gives. Thank you that it's your word that lifts us up. It's your word that gives us the strength to go on. And Lord... Help us to remember that it's your word that changes society. Oh Lord, when we look at the brokenheartedness of our society with the horrible things that happen in it, we realize that is the disillusionment, the dissolution of the family, absent fathers those who don't see your word or church as important. Lord, we have so much to offer a broken world around us that takes out its anger on innocent people. We have so much to offer, Lord, as a church as we have stable 
families. We're not perfect, Father, but our families, our marriages are stable. Our children are cared for. Help us to know that we have something to offer this broken and sad world. We pray in Jesus' name.